0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh God, show us what it means for us to love these others that you lift up in your word today. Um, Give us strength to hear and the courage to follow. In Christ we pray. Amen. The preacher was talking on this text that we read today on loving our enemies. And he was telling the congregation, you know, I bet most all of us have enemies in our lives. So he said, I want to do this. He um, says, if you have a whole lot of enemies in your life, raise your hand. And several folks raised their hand. Carter, put your hand down. <laughs> raise your hand. And then he said... Um, well, if, if you have some enemies, you know, a few enemies raise your hand, and then many more people raise their hand up. and You go, see, now all of us have enemies. Go, is there anybody that just has one or two enemies? And then several more hands came up, rose, uh, you know, and, and the preacher went on to say, how, well, yeah, all of us have enemies in our lives. Um. Then he said, well, is there anybody here that... Uh, doesn't have any enemies at all, and he was expecting no answers. So he was going to go on. And then in the back of the sanctuary, this one hand came up. The man stand up, it's an elderly man, and he said, I don't have enemies, I don't have any enemies whatsoever. The man boasts. Well, this delights the preacher so much that he asked this older man to come down up to the front so he could talk with him. He told him, he said, now what a blessing you are for the rest of us how old are you? The man said, I'm 97 years old and I don't have any enemies. The preacher was amazed and he tells the man, sir, you are a great witness of faith um, that you um, are able to do this, to say that you don't have any enemies. We are very grateful. Um, Could you give us some kind of a clue how it is that you don't have any enemies? And the elderly man replied, well, all those jerks are dead. And actually, the, in the story I read, he doesn't call them jerks. I didn't use that word, because some of y'all might not like that I'd say that. <laughs> this morning, Jesus tells us, love your enemies, do good who, to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for, pray for those who abuse you. Last Sunday, we lifted up this scripture in our faith formation time. And after we read the text that day, somebody commented, that is a hard pill to swallow. This past week, I've wrestled with this text, and trust me, it doesn't get any easier to swallow that pill. It still isn't. That being said, I was reminded of um, something that was actually in a book in my office that I haven't pulled off the shelf in, in years. It's a book of sermons written by someone. So I went through that particular chapter. It was on loving your enemies. And I was reading. I, I would stop and go, I need to tell that quote in my sermon today. And then I'd read a little bit more. i go, man, I would marked that one up good. I need to make sure I say that one. And I kept reading. And it was pretty much... I needed to just read that sermon. I've never done this before. I actually um, read a sermon of someone else as my sermon. I've never done that before, Um, but I'm going to do it today. I actually asked a minister group that I meet with, some disciple ministers, what they thought of me doing that, and they, they gave their approval. So if you don't like that, I'll give you the names of those ministers, and you can This morning I want to read a sermon by Martin Luther King. It's in his book called Strength to Love. It was uh, several sermons that he published back in 1963. There are various various, um, adaptations of this sermon. He preached it in several places, and I I tried to find on YouTube a good good one of that, but they were either too short or way too long. So I'm just going to read this, Loving Your Enemies. Probably no admonition of Jesus has been more difficult to follow than the command to love your enemies. Some people have sincerely felt that its actual practice is not possible. It's easy, they say, to love those who love you, but how can you love those who openly seek to defeat you? Others, like the philosopher Nietzsche, contend that Jesus' exhortation to love one's enemy is testimony to the fact that the Christian ethic is designed for the weak and the cowardly and not for the strong and courageous. Jesus, they say, was an impractical idealist. In spite of these insistent questions and persistent objections, this command of Jesus challenges us with a new urgency. Upheaval after upheaval has reminded us that modern man is traveling along a road called hate. In a journey that will bring us to destruction and damnation, far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, the command to love one's enemy is an absolute necessity for our survival. Love, even for enemies, is the key to the solution of the problems of our world. Jesus is not an impractical idealist. He is the practical realist. Now I'm certain that Jesus understood the difficulty inherent in the act of loving one's enemy. He never joined the ranks of those who talk glibly about the easiness of the moral life. He realized that every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. So when Jesus said, love your enemies, he wasn't unmindful of the difficult qualities. Yet he meant every word of it. Our responsibility as Christians is to discover the meaning of this command and to seek passionately to live it out in our daily lives. Let us be practical and ask the question, How do we love our enemies? First, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. It's impossible even to begin the act of loving one's enemies without the prior acceptance of the necessity over and over again to forgive those who inflict evil and injury upon us. It's also necessary to realize that the forgiving act must always be initiated by the person who was wronged, the victim of some great hurt, the absorber of some terrible act of oppression. The wrongdoer must ask for forgiveness. He may come to himself like the prodigal son, his heart palpitating with the desire for forgiveness, but only the injured neighbor, the loving father back home, can really pour out the warm waters of forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting false label on an evil act. It means, rather, that the evil act no longer remains a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start, a new beginning. It's the lifting of a burden, the canceling of a debt. The words, I will forgive you, but I'll never forget what you've done. Well, they don't explain the real nature of forgiveness. Certainly a person can never forget, if that means erasing it totally from your mind. But when we forgive... We forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block impeding new relationship. Likewise, we can never say, I will forgive you, but I'll have nothing further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. Without this, no man can love his enemies. The degree to which we are able to forgive determines the degree to which we are able to love our enemies. Secondly, we must recognize that the evil deed of the enemy, our neighbor, the thing that hurts, never quite expresses all that he is. An element of goodness may be found in even our worst enemy. You see, each of us is something of a schizophrenic personality, tragically divided against ourselves. A persistent civil war rages within each of us. Something within us causes to lament with Ovid, the Latin poet, who said, I see and approve the better things, but I follow the worse ones. Or to repeat with Apostle Paul, the good that I would do, I do not do, but the evil that I don't want to do, that is what I do. This simply means that there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. When we look beneath the surface, beneath the impulsive evil deed, we see within our enemy a measure of goodness and know that the viciousness and evilness of his acts are not quite representative of all that he is. We see him in a new light. We recognize that his hate grows out of fear and pride ignorance, prejudice, misunderstanding, but in spite of all of this, we know that God's image is definitely etched in His being. Then we can love our enemies by realizing that they're not totally bad and that they're not beyond the reach of God's redemptive love. Third, we must not seek to defeat or humiliate the enemy, but to win his friendship and understanding At times we are able to humiliate our worst enemy. Inevitably, his weak moments come and we're able to thrust in his side the spear of defeat. But this we must not do. Every word and deed must contribute to an understanding with the enemy and release those vast reservoirs of goodwill which have been blocked by walls of hate. The meaning of love is not to be confused with some sentimental outpouring Love is something much deeper than emotional bosh. Perhaps the Greek language can clear our confusion at this point. In the Greek New Testament, there are three words for love. The word eros is a sort of aesthetic or romantic love. The second word is philia, a reciprocal love, the intimate affection and friendship between friends. We love those whom we like, and we love because we are loved. The third word is agape, which is redemptive goodwill for all people. An overflowing love which seeks nothing in return, agape love, is the love of God operating in the human heart. At this level, we love people not because we like them, nor because their ways appeal to us, not even because they possess some type of divine spark. We love every person because God loves him. And at this level... We love the person who does an evil deed even when we hate the deed that he does. Now we can see what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. We should be happy they didn't say to like your enemies because it's almost impossible to like some people. Like is a sentimental and affectionate word. How can we be affectionate toward a person whose aim is to crush our very being and place innumerable innumerable stumbling blocks in our paths? How can we like a person who is threatening our children and bombing our homes? That is impossible. But Jesus recognized that love is greater than like. Like. When Jesus bids us to love our enemies, he's not speaking of eros or philia love. He's speaking of agape love. Understanding and creative, redemptive goodwill for all people. Only by following this way and responding with this type of love are we to be children of our Father who is in heaven. Let us now move from the practical how to the theoretical why. Why? Why should we love our enemies? Well, the first reason is fairly obvious. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate, violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies or else? The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken or we will be plunged in the dark abyss of annihilation. Another reason why we must love our enemies is that hate scars the soul and distorts the personality. Mindful that hate is an evil and dangerous force, we too often think of what it does to the person hated. That's understandable for hate brings in damages to its victims. We've seen its ugly consequences in the horrible deaths brought to six million Jews by a hate-obsessed madman named Hitler, in the unspeakable violence inflicted upon Negroes by bloodthirsty mobs, in the dark horrors of war, in the terrible indignities and injustices perpetuated against millions of God's children by uncaring oppressors. But there's another side which we must not overlook. Hate is just as injurious to the person who hates. Like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away at its vital unity. Hate destroys a man's sense of values and his objectivity. It causes him to describe the beautiful as ugly and the ugly as beautiful, to confuse the true with the false and the false with the true, The third reason why we should love our enemies is that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We can never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We can get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. Abraham Lincoln tried love and left for all history a magnificent drama of reconciliation. When Lincoln was campaigning for the presidency, one of his arch enemies was a man named Stanton. For some reason, Stanton hated Lincoln. He used every ounce of his energy to degrade him in the eyes of the public. So deep-rooted was Stanton's hate for Lincoln that he uttered unkind words about his physical appearance. He sought to embarrass him at every point with the bitterest diatribes. But in spite of all of that, Lincoln was elected president. Then came the period when he had to select his cabinet, which would consist of the persons who would be his most intimate associates in implementing his program He started choosing men here and there for the various secretaryships. The day finally came for Lincoln to select a man to fill the all-important post of Secretary of War. Can you imagine who Lincoln chose to fill this post? None other than the man named Stanton. There was immediate uproar in the inner circle when the news began to spread. Advisor after advisor was heard saying, Mr. President, you're making a mistake. Do you know this man Stanton? Are you familiar with all the ugly things he said about you? He's your enemy. He will seek to sabotage your program and your presidency. Have you thought this through, Mr. President? Lincoln's answer was terse and to the point. Yes, I know Mr. Stanton, and I'm well aware of all the terrible things he said about me, but after looking over the nation, I find that he is the best man for the job. So Stanton became Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War and rendered an invaluable service to his nation and his president. Not many years later, Lincoln was assassinated. And many, many laudable things were said about him. Even today, millions of people still adore him as the greatest of all Americans. H.G. Wells selected him as one of the six greatest men in history. But of all the great statements made about Abraham Lincoln, the words of Stanton remain among the greatest. Standing near the dead body of the man he once hated, Stanton referred to him as one of the greatest men that ever lived and then said that now Lincoln belongs to the ages. You see, if Lincoln had hated Stanton, both men would have gone to their graves as bitter enemies. But through the power of love, Lincoln transformed an enemy into a friend. It was the same attitude that made it possible for Lincoln to speak a kind word about the South during the Civil War when feelings were most bitter. Asked by a shocked bystander how he could do this, Lincoln said, Madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? This is the power of redemptive love. We must hasten to say that these are not the ultimate reasons why we should love our enemies. An even more basic reason why we are commanded to love is expressed in Jesus' words. Love your enemies that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. We're called to this difficult task in order to realize our unique relationship with God. We are children of God. And through love, that potentiality becomes actuality. We must love our enemies because only by loving them can we know God and experience the beauty of His holiness. The relevance of what I've said to the crisis in race relations should be readily apparent. There will be no permanent solution to the race problem until oppressed men develop the capacity to love their enemies the racial injustice will be dispelled only by the light of forgiving love. For more than three centuries, American Negroes have been battered by the iron rod of oppression, frustrated by day and bewildered by night by unbearable injustice unbur- and burdened with the ugly weight of discrimination. Forced to live with these shameful conditions, we are tempted to become bitter and to retaliate with a corresponding hate. But if this happens, the new order we seek will be a little more than a duplicate of the old order. We must, in strength and humility, meet hate with love. Of course, this isn't practical. Life is a matter of getting even, of, getting, of hitting back, of dog-eat-dog. Am I saying that Jesus commands us to love those who hurt and oppress us? Do I sound like most preachers, idealistic and impractical? Maybe in some distant utopia, you say, that idea will work, but not in the whole hard, cold world that we live in. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now, and it's led us straight to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrender to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation, the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean that we abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the sin of segregation, but we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While hating segregation, we must love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we will continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is just as important a moral obligation is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail. We'll still love you. Send your hooded perpetrator perpetu- perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Love is the most durable power in the world. We know what happened to Martin Luther King who sought to love his enemies. We know what happened to Jesus who loved his enemies. But still we're called to love our enemies. It's a bitter, hard pill to swallow. But that is our call as followers of Jesus. Amen.